I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 28. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. I hope you're all doing okay out there. Thanks to everyone that showed their appreciation for the return of Life in Dub. It's always great to hear that you're listening and enjoying the podcast out there. So keep spreading the word and always get in touch if you want to let me know your thoughts about any of the episodes. And remember, you can go back and listen to any of the previous 27 episodes at lifeindub.com or wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. This week, I want to talk about something for the last time. That's because this week sees the release of the last in the current series of the Scoops Gold Disc Classic series. That's the series of reissues that I've been working on over the last year. The last in this series is China Rock, a tune that originally came out on the Jar Tubby's label back in 2008. The Jar Tubby's label has a reputation for putting out great music for the longest time, so it's always an honour to be involved in their releases. But as each release is on a limited press, they sell out really quickly and become highly sought after collector's items in no time. China Rock is no exception and I've been asked about it countless times over the last 10 years. It's a pure digital sound system tune for those 4am times in the dance. Heavy and melodic and a track I still love to listen to now. So it seemed perfect for a reissue. I even managed to find a previously unreleased dubplate mix of China Rock in the archive. So you can find that on the B-side. It's the final Scoops Gold Disc Classic for now and you can pick up a copy of China Rock on Bandcamp or at vibronics.co.uk. Next out on Scoops will be some new productions but more about that later. This week, my guest is Martin Campbell, a vocalist and producer with an unmistakable voice and musical style. I think it's fair to say that Martin Campbell is something of an enigma, the veteran white singer with a direct link to the Channel One recording studio in Jamaica. I've loved his work for as long as I can remember and was first hypnotized by the timeless foundation track Wicked Rule maybe 30 years ago. It was a real treat to get to know more about Martin and his life in reggae, and he shares so many great stories in this conversation. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Martin Campbell, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Thank you. Um, Pleasure. First face-to-face interview I've done for a while. Everything else has been done remotely, so it's nice to kind of actually have a normal conversation. And what I do at the start of each podcast, I kick it off with the same question that I ask everyone, which is the um, the the name and important track question. So it's just you know just a way to introduce yourself and talk about the music, but like to, to name a track that's been really influential and really kind of left an impression on you. So um, so yeah, have you got a track you'd want to mention? Yeah, the most influential track is from I think it was 1980 or 1981, which was General, done by Dennis Brown in Channel One. And at that time, I think Sly and Robbie kind of stripped the rhythm right out. So it was very basic. And that's what became the basis for my kind of layout in the rhythms that I do. I like to keep them very, very sparse, but very well recorded. And what what a great vocal on a rhythm as well. It's like they're kind of made for each other. Yeah, exactly. And it's and hasn't that rhythm? Has it got some like syndromes and things on it? It's got a, like yes. a, it's a wicked production. Yeah, they did. Fit. Sly at the time was always saying that um, reggae has to keep up with the times. And in America, the American music was beginning to feature those kind of electronic syndromes. 
they were using. So yeah, that rhythm's got it in there as well. But it was the sound that um, they were getting on the just the basic drum kit, uh, the, the emptiness of it. And it's that like yeah, we were just talking earlier on. I did a bit of recording of Mafia and Fluxy recently, and it's like when you've got a drummer of that caliber then, you know, how do I get the drum sound? How do I do that? You, you just get a great drummer and you sit in front of a kit and they, they sound like that. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, although I'll tell you a story that um, Ernest Hookim, who was one of the Hookim brothers in Channel One, he, he would spend hours, even a whole day, just recording Sly on the drum kit, moving the mics, dampening up the snare, putting some more cloth in the kick drum. He spent a lot of time around about that, that time in, 19, in the early 80s, late 70s. Well, think about having a studio where you specialise in something like that, is that you can just fine-tune and fine-tune, and it's like you might not... I, mean, I know they had great equipment as well, but it's also more about getting the absolute best out of what you've got, I guess. Yes, uh, I mean, I remember Ernest used to say that if you listen to the, the drum sound on American records, the, the, the sound that we were getting in Jamaica, was it, it, it wasn't good enough. It, it had to compete more with the, the American sound, and that's when they started working on, on the, uh, the drum kits. Uh, I can remember, I used to get a magazine back then, it was called Studio Sound, and it was a professional recording sound i don't know if you know that magazine. no i don't know that magazine. it was called no. studio sound and it, it was professional it had all electric you know the modern stuff the gear everything in there and ernest used to to read them and he used to look at the microphones and he began to get a better understanding of of what was required to get that change of the sound in the drums which channel one were very famous for because they really changed the sound of the drum and the bass in jamaica Yes, it's in incredible. And when you listen to those recordings, it's like, I mean, you know, obviously reggae music's all about the drums and the bass and about getting that rhythm over, but you can hear it so, so fat in those recordings. But what, what I'd like to ask you about is, is about yourself and how you started out. So, um, and there's talk, you know, you're already talking about being in Jamaica and stuff like that. So, so how, how did your musical journey all start out? Well, I knew, I knew um, Jojo, who was the eldest brother who, who actually built Channel One. Um, he was the one that had the idea in the first place. He was the one that wanted to do it. And the other brothers kind of fell into place afterwards. But from that, I, I really had a love of music. My music, my musical journey first started when I was um, in the cadets in the not the cadets the scouts in jamaica and we had a a flute band so how old were you when you were in jamaica in this time uh, i would have been at the time of the of the flute band the scouts i probably was around about seven to eight years old then yeah and what was it like in jamaica when you were seven years old i mean well it was a little bit different to how it is now um it was still not too long finished with the British, you know, governing the place. So it kind of had a different vibe to it. It was still very, a lot, you know, the place was still quite alive. Um, I think there was probably a little less 
um, poverty like what you see today when you go to Kingston. The roads were better maintained. Um, everything was still pretty well maintained from when the British had handed it over. So uh, that was in the, like, the, the middle to late 60s. And then you were playing music in the scans? I was playing drums. I was a drummer. And funny enough, um, I remember I, I was chatting to Style Scott, who was another famous drummer from Channel One, and he told me that he started in the army, in drum corps in the army. What a Style Scott. I mean, I'm such a big fan of the Radix sound. Me and that too. Approach. Yeah. It's like incredible drummer. Yeah, so yeah. A, a great loss to music, definitely, Absolutely. when he passed. Yeah. Um, so you were in Jamaica like kind of before Roots Reggae, as we know it, even yes. existed then. Yeah. So w were you there, like, when it started to appear, and like, were you still there then? Yes, yeah, yeah. What, what was going on then? I mean, well, that, do you um, remember that sort of Yeah, the, I mean, you had, you had uh, Striker Lee, Bunny Lee, was doing a lot of productions back then. And the pace of the music was quite slow, and it was just gradually, I think it was the chords they were playing and the bass lines... They just started to become more uh, minor chords, and that's how the roots thing developed. And it came to its fore probably around 1975, 76. And as as you kind of start to grow up in Jamaica, then when did you like get involved in music? Visit studios. I mean, you know, it's quite a transition from being a scout yeah, when I, to being yeah. like hanging out at Channel One. <laughs> yeah, as I got older, yeah, I I I started to go to Channel One uh, with JoJo and that, and um, I just loved the what they were doing down there. I just I started to realise that it's something that I wanted to do. Well, I thought I felt I wanted to do. In fact, I can remember um, once saying to Jojo, uh, this is at a later period, by the way, now, in the early 80s when the dancehall thing was coming. I remember saying to Jojo, they're singing off the top of their heads. They're not, they're not writing the lyrics out anymore. It's only people like Gregory, Dennis Brown. Putting pen to paper. Yes. These youths were coming in hungry, no shoes on their feet. You know, but looking to try and get a break. And they were just singing off the top of their heads over a rhythm, you know, probably a Junja Laws rhythm or something. Um, so, yeah, I diverged there. <laughs> Rob, I'm just interested in, because, you know, we were talking earlier on about studios. We're both total studio heads, yeah. obviously. And what, what was it like at Channel One? If you, if you could describe it, like, this is what Channel One was like. I'd, well, I'd I would know. say... Um, Channel One was located right in the heart of the ghetto off Maxfield Avenue in Swettenham Road and um, it, it's totally different to what you would see in a British studio you go into the yard at Channel One and before you actually go in the studio there's a yard and there's going to be a guy sitting on the gate that's Zebby is going to allow you in, in or, or not and then as soon as you go in, there's going to be a pot of food cooking. And there's going to be guys uh, playing dice and people going in and out. Uh, it's nothing like what you'd imagine a British recording studio to be like at all. It's like a big family school kind of atmosphere. And then when you go in the actual building it's in, I mean, physically, what, what was it like in Channel One? 
Um, they had air conditioning in there, so it, it was quite cool inside. It was always quite dark, I remember. It was always dark in the studio, you know. Is it like, like windowless? Win- both yeah, there was no windowless. windows. No, I don't remember any windows in there, no. No, so... Um, the studio, the actual control room was quite small. You could just about get all the recording machines in there because they had several different types of recording equipment machines from two-track to four-track and then eventually the 16-track. Uh, so everything was cramped up in there. They had the famous API console in there. And these everything. things all give out a lot of heat as well. You've got these they machines. Do. They're they all do. like, you know, using a lot of electricity and giving out a lot of heat. So. Uh, you'd have people in there smoking like hell, you know, be full of smoke a lot of the time. Um, some people be eating. I remember behind the console, there was a, a kind of a, a, like a sofa where you could sit. You could sit down between there and the, and the glass into the, the view into the studio. Um, it was just a different kind of atmosphere to what you would get in a in a British studio. And then you've got like a slightly bigger room, which is the recording room where they yes. have the drums and where the, the musicians would play. Yes, yes. But again, the musicians would be... A lot of times, uh, recording would take place quite quickly. Not much rehearsal. Um, you know, the drummer would start or the keyboard. The piano would find the, the keys maybe to someone who's going to sing something. They'd find some keys uh, and they'd start banging a couple of chords out and then uh, Flabber would get a bass line, you know, and then they'd start up and they'd run through half of it and then they'd roll it, roll it, and the tape would start moving and, and they'd, they'd take it like that, mistakes and all. And when, you, when you've got musicians of that calibre in a studio that's like fine-tuned like that, then, because I was going to ask, like, what, what you think, what, what, why do you think Channel One created this magic? I mean, what, what, is, it, is there a thing they did? I would say, in fact, I remember talking to Byron Lee one time about it, and he said to me, Channel One was an accident. In fact, Jojo never forget. He always used to ask me, well, what, did, what did Byron Lee say to you, Martin? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't think it was an accident purely, but yes, there's a certain amount of, a combination of factors that came together to create the magic that went on in there. It was its location, for one. So you had a lot of the ghetto youth coming in there and they got a lot of talent and innovation. Um then you had the circumstances, like the piano was very seldom in tune, so that created a, a character to the, the rhythm that they were recording in there. Um, there was the console that they used, the API console, uh, a combination of different factors, you know. And then, I guess on top of that, you put these amazing musicians in there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a killer combination. It's yeah. like proper yeah. gear and yeah. then like proper musicians. And I guess there can't have been many other sort of like white British people hanging around in Channel One. Back no, in the there day. was sometimes um, there was there was a guy. I remember there was an American guy, a white guy that used to sometimes play guitar in there. I can't think what his name was. He, he had long hair and glasses. Um, and Jojo told me at one time that. Um, what's the guy that does Virgin Records? I forgot. Branson, Branson came down there. But apparently Branson came in there. Branson in the ghetto. Yeah, exactly. He came down to see to find out what they were doing, and he, he didn't get a very warm reception. Apparently, it's, it's like the longevity of what what they created. Like this, the, the fact that 
it still, you know, to my ears at least, still sounds amazing. But you know, at the time, we never thought that that would ever last long. No, no. We didn't think anything of it at the time. And many, many other kinds of music in other studios didn't last the test of time. There's something like, you know, extra magical about this reggae music from that era. And with your, your own sort of career, then, you know, most people know you as like a songwriter, lyricist, producer. Yeah. So when did you start, like, songwriting, vocalising and producing yourself? I wanted to do something myself. And obviously... Uh, I come from a privileged background in Jamaica, you know. <laughs> so I was very fortunate that um, my parents allowed me to have a little room in the house, which is uptown, in a nice area in Kingston. And I was able to start. I just bought a little four-track TIAC 3340S. They're the ones, You yeah. remember that? I had a little quarter-inch TIAC. And I had a little ITAM mixing console, about, I think it was 12 into 2. And with that, and I had a little Grampian reverb. And with those very limited equipment, some mics, like I could string up a drum set and mic it up very basically. And that's how I started to do it, you know. You, you'd mic up the drums at home when you're... They'd go in the garage. They'd go in my mum's garage um, to get the reverb sound. Uh, and this is you you playing the drums. I had to you... play everything in those days there was no no there was no technology you had to play everything live and how, how did you learn this stuff because it's like you know we, we were talking yesterday in the studio um about playing drums and it's like in my head I can play drums because I program them but I can't right. physically play them at all okay the skill of playing a drum I got from when I was in the scouts remember I said I was in the yeah, the, the band yeah, no, so I already right. had that that skill was there um, but I didn't know how to, to play a bass, um, and someone gave me a bass. I had to play around with it for quite a while before I could get a decent sound out of it. And I remember um, in Channel One, they used to put the bass direct into the console. They never record it through a microphone. For all of this, when I was also in the Scouts, um, before that, actually, when I was younger than that, my mother sent me to piano lessons. Okay, well, that's going to give you that grounding. So I had the music. piano, the key. Yeah, yeah, I could yeah. play the piano. My fingers could move on the piano as also well. Also, that gives you an understanding of like what a note is and a scale is, and those exactly. like even even it's rudimentary stuff. Just some doorway into like what what music is. Yes, I would agree. I think that was the foundation for me was learning the piano. Yeah. So it's fair to say that like. Um, because again, it's something I talk to a lot of people, a lot of the guests on the podcast about, because I'm so into the studio, is kind of, for some people it's kind of boring and whatever, but like for me it's heaven. But it sounds like, you know, it's fair to say that you obviously like the studio and messing it, around with sounds. That's what started it all. I, I used to, I was more interested in learning how to record and get a decent sound onto tape, but that was my first objective. And I was so disappointed because I would, I would make a recording and, and, and then I, I'd put something from Channel One on and I'd think, oh my God, I sound nothing like it at all. Actually, a lot of people said, you do, you do sound like it. They, what they used to say to me is that the way you're playing the rhythm sounds like it. It's just that you haven't got the same wideness of the, the, the dimensions that, that, you know, Channel One has, but you've got the same playing style. You've definitely got the style. And I don't know where that came from. 
I think it's good to aim high as well. Like I think a lot of people aim kind of too low, really. And if you're listening to like the best Channel One and saying, "Why doesn't it sound? Why doesn't it sound like that?" It's only going to spur you on to try and make it sound good. I'm telling you, you you know it. I mean, you just go, want to buy more equipment. You see the kind of stuff they've got in Channel One. I mean, I couldn't go out and buy a 16 track Ampex like what they had in there. I couldn't think because people, people the, the kids of today, but no, people these days, you know, won't realise how just how expensive that equipment was. Like a, a mix, a proper professional mixing desk, a proper multi-track microphones, the wire, even the wires, like everything was like was top dollar back then. Yeah, you'd be looking at probably today's money. You'd be looking probably about hundred grand. Now, just yeah. get a laptop and some software and you're exactly, off. Exactly, and you're off. Yeah, but it doesn't... You see, this is my argument. It doesn't sound like that. When you put it on a sound system, you can hear the, the difference in the dynamics. That's it. That's it. Those old tunes just kind of... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they've stood that test of time. Yeah. And obviously, the, the other thing people know you for, and probably mo- I would say most people know you more, is, is your voice and your lyrics. When did all that start? You know, that, that started by accident. Because I'd make these rhythms and then I would think, I'm going to put a song over it just to, to, so I can get a feel of how it might. And, and I would just get these songs that were nothing like what everybody else was doing. I would get lyrics that are just not what people are singing about, you know? But it's still, I think, you know, your voice has a connection to a lot of the reggae classics, though, and, and, yeah. and just the approach... Yeah, you know, lyrically, obviously, the, the the sort of use of like parable and storytelling yeah. and sort of poetry, but but also just physically how you do it is it got for me it's got a link to yeah. you know Laxley Castell and all these other sort definitely, of classics yeah. at the time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, that, they, I, I obviously you hear the people in the studio in Channel One the way they're singing, and you think, yeah. I, when I first started singing, I thought I sounded a bit like Fred Locks the tone of my voice, you know, and then you you kind of start to move into that kind of it. You think, I'm good, I, yeah, I, I sound like this particular person, so I'm going to try and imitate that person. And do you think having, like, a microphone in a basic studio allowed you to listen back and kind of keep working on it? Yes, definitely, definitely. Own your craft. Yeah, that's it, exactly. You play yourself back through the monitors and you think, oh, that sounds awful. I need to work on that. And you just keep on, on, on working, 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 developing, developing. That's what you have to do. But I think that's important to have that um, like ability to say, oh, that sounds awful, because some singers don't. They just think everything they do sounds great, oh, and it's much I've better never been to happy, be critical. never been happy with how I sound, to be honest with you. It's never sounded right to me. It sounds very good to me, definitely. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> but also, what, what you're singing about, it's like, I'm, you know... I'm really interested in lyrics and so how did you come into like writing and um I realized that uh roots music particularly it was a very powerful form of transport to put kind of prophetic messages across to people to try and make people aware of the reality of what's going on around them um so that's why it went into that kind of dimension. I thought, I'm not going to just sing songs about, love songs about girls. and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to s- stick more with this, you know, biblical kind of prophetic. Because it's it's message and it, it this is a wonderful music. 
particularly when it's roots music and you've got a very heavy bass line talking behind the rhythm and the rhythm is sparse so the vocal is elevated above the lyric everybody can hear clearly what you're saying so you need to make use of that what about like the sort of again i'm the the longer i do it the more i'm interested in the sort of discipline of like rhyming and and saying a lot with like quite a few words well i you know what the funny you should say about the rhyming you know how i used to do it in fact i still sometimes do it I used to get a piece of paper and write A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. I put all the, all the letters of the alphabet down. And then I would say, I, at, the last, at the end of the line is the word road. And then I would go through all the letters, you know, toad, <laughs> code, <laughs> until I could find a lyric that I thought was suitable to rhyme with the last line. And then I would, you know, put it like that. So, but they're like the, they're the techniques you need to hone hone that in. So it's like it, it's all working, and because I mean, some some singers do stuff that doesn't rhyme, and it, and it works out it works fine. It's still more because of the, the tone of the, the yeah. But that sort of that that um, like discipline of like yes, it's, it's like a kind it's of poem. Something yeah, like a poem. I, I kind of developed that. Eventually, as you keep on working, you you develop your own style, your own your own way of, of writing your own which everybody begins to recognize after a while and who, who are you influenced by i mean is there anybody you, whose words and lyrics or writing that you, you really liked i can't say that the lyrics are it's more the tone of the voice definitely horace andy was a big influence for me when i was younger fred locks um but the lyrics no i i think i've always just been my own what i want to say not follow what they might be talking about, you know? I guess you've always had an interest in, like, politics and history. Yes, because, yes very much. Because that comes out in the lyrics, definitely. Very much, definitely, very much, yes. Um, and again, because I'm a, I'm a European in a kind of a setting that is not, not Europe, I guess... Um, it becomes controversial and it makes people listen a little bit. They just might pay that little bit more attention uh, when, you're, when you're saying something. I'm, I'm not even singing about... Uh, I'm singing about the, the history of Jamaica, maybe, the, the, how, how it, what's happened. You know, I'm describing sometimes the, the, the legacy of what's happened. I like to sing a lot about the psychology, the psychological damage that's taken place not just singing about the history and telling it as a story, but also the psychological damage. It's it's how it's affected people in a psychological way. And how how did you sort of pick up on that? Because some some people are just blind to all that stuff. And and like nowadays, there's so you know you just Google anything, you get information instantly. But like you know you're talking about writing stuff back in the day. That's like there wasn't so much access to that information. So, um. It's a tricky question. It's a tricky question, but it developed over time and reading and studying history, realizing that um, particularly when you, when you can't, when I, I live here in England, you can see that a lot of people have difficulty talking about um, aspects of history. They, they find it uncomfortable to talk about it, you know? You can see a lot of people feel uncomfortable to talk about slavery, colonialism, all those kind of things. 
staring you in the face your whole upbringing, I guess, if you're there yep. and just a young person. I've lived amongst it and seen seen the effects of that, what it's done to people, you know? I think, I think that's what gives your music that, that sort of quality that's made it last. Is Some people can try and sing that kind of stuff, but if you've seen it, you've seen no shoes on your feet, you've kind of seen yeah. that kind of stuff that's going on, then it's like, it's your own personal take, I guess. Yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's just, I, also, it's the, the controversy which I, I, I want to bring into the music is art to be controversial. So, you know, I, I, this is why I like to focus on those kind of songs and, and those subjects. Well, speaking of songs and subjects, I mean, if you, we like fast forward a bit to, um, I guess, like back in, back in the UK and then like where I became aware of you, which is where a lot of people, especially people my age did, is, is tunes like Wicked Rule. Um, now that's made like, here in UK I guess so you you, you kind of come back and like got involved in music here I guess well yeah I just um, I, I was able to carry on and develop the studio and develop the singing and just just carry the whole thing on and the equipment got better um, at that time I was working with a guy called um, Jar Reg from Jar Works um, so we were able to um, get the production and everything in, you know, and that's why that tune was the way it sounds. It's got a kind of a unique sound to it. It's the horns and everything, you know. It's very unique, and also unique like chord structure, and it's it's definitely it's you know it's it's a stepper track that's like an anthem for for the yeah. sound system. But it's yeah. also it's got something else going on as well. You know, one of my loves is jazz music, and also Latin American. I think the chords in that were a bit kind of Latin, Cuban kind of... And the horns as well, yeah. definitely. They've got that so kind of Mexican that influence style. that influences there. Um, you know, there's just so many tracks you've been involved in. Um, but, you know, some of the more popular ones, I guess things like Ignorance and Poverty, um, it's like, again, it's like, you know, no holds barred lyrically. And obviously yeah. that came quite a bit later, I guess, than Wicked well, Rule. A lot of the time I'm singing about the situation in Jamaica and about the Jamaican government, what's, you know, going on there. And, and then you find people in Brazil can relate to that. And you realise people all around the world can relate to that. And, you, and, and in, when it comes to, like, recording and stuff, you're still involved in, like, analogue and vintage recording and doing yep. it in the old way. I still do a lot of it in the old way. Um, I don't use analog tape anymore. It's too expensive. I've still got the machine there. I like the spring reverbs. That gives the same channel one reverberation sound on the on the snare and that, you know. Just gives it that kind of linkage to, you know, to, to channel one, yeah. It's interesting, like, because one, there's, there's obviously so many tunes you've done, but things like um, like Urban Style that you did for the French guys... Is like that's that's your voice on something that's really like contemporary and different and but but boy does it work you know I remember traveling to Lyon to do that in France uh, probably about twelve fifteen years ago it's quite a long time ago but <laughs> it's a bit of a story to that actually always it uh, yeah because when I finished it it sounded great and then the guy that I can't remember his name now but the following morning he was supposed to get up early and take me to the airport and he'd been drinking and he, I was all ready to go and I was waiting for him to come and pick me up from the hotel and um, 
he didn't turn up. Anyhow, eventually he came like two hours later and I could tell he'd been drinking. And I said to him, listen, the, the plane's probably already gone. You should have been here at six and you've come here at eight. Anyway, he took me to the airport and sure enough, the plane had gone. Anyway, the only way out of it, he had to buy me a first-class ticket on a British Airways flight back to London. It was it's the only way for Martin Campbell to travel, surely. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. <laughs> but that's, you know, it's interesting you talk about that, that side of things because most people don't get to see what happens involving travelling and everything and they just see, hear the records or see the shows, but it's like, you know, it can be quite crazy once you leave the house. Absolutely. I'll be honest with you. I, I love doing the festivals. It's lovely to be... To, to see the people that appreciate your music in front of you, that's wonderful. But, oh boy, the travelling, I, I just don't like it at all now. I, I, I don't enjoy it anymore. I've been kind of glad that, you know, there's been a lockdown. You, you want to tell me about some of the places that you've been as well? Because you do travel a lot with the music. Well, I've done, when we yeah, done uh, most of Europe. Uh, I've done Brazil, Mexico, of course, America. Um... Yeah, I mean, I haven't done much in the UK. The kind of music that that you make is similar to the kind of situation I'm in, where it's like it's played by the sound systems. If you want to hear that kind of music, you're going to go and check, you know, Shaka or you know, Abashanti, Iration, you know, whatever. So there's less call for producers or vocalists or whatever to play. Whereas in Europe, there's much more of a kind of people are totally. invited. Totally. And now comes the controversial bit that I have to say. Music has always had what I call third-party interlopers, people that you have to pass through in order to get your music out to an audience. In the case of the kind of music that, that you and I are doing, it has to go through a sound system because that's where people are going to really first hear your music. But I don't believe my music gets played by the big four, what I call the big four sound systems in this country. I don't, I don't believe it gets played because it's not going in the tempo that they are all playing at the moment. It's just not... My music has always stayed true to the one-drop roots style, whereas what most people are listening to at the moment is this kind of stepping type of music with a straight four kick drum going and i understand that i understand it's easier to for europeans to dance to that beat than to, to be swinging their hips you know like in the caribbean to the one drop beat you know i understand that so but unfortunately i don't fit into that and things change don't they because even in the 90s it's like i was a big fan of what I consider to be the last good period of like Jamaican music, you know, Exterminator and yeah, yeah. Red Eyes and Star Trail, all these great labels yeah. putting out kind of one drops that all had that kind of swing, but still sounded modern. And it's like, and you'd, you'd hear those in a dance, you know, you'd hear them everywhere, but that's, it's almost entirely been like eradicated by this steppers and which, you know, I, I love the steppers. That's, that's kind of what I started out doing. Um, but it's, there's definitely a sort of like a clubification kind of thing that's happened and that makes those tunes, like you're talking about, the one-drop kind of swing tunes, you know, they just don't get a look in like they used to. No, not at all. But th one of the things that's happened with my music is because I've stuck 
I haven't moved away. I've stuck with the tradition. It's now made them this kind of music standing out from everything else. It's starting to stand out now. And a lot of people are listening to it and thinking this is more this is this different and I get comments from on Facebook and you know where people say it just sounds authentic what you're doing just keep doing what you're doing you know other people have said to me you, you just remain authentic to what you're doing because I do discuss it sometimes with certain people they might be listening to this program right now they'll Many know people are, they know who they are and and we've had long quite a long discussions about me staying authentic you know i have tried to stick to to what i want to do and not get taken in by any particular fashion at the time or anything you know but yeah i think it's a couple of things i mean i'd say about that which is that there are there's loads of smaller sessions happening all over the place where maybe they right. are playing your tunes as right. well where it's kind of there isn't that like you know we have to hype it up kind of vibe right um but also people are so clearly still listening to your music and still it's still resonating with people yeah it's kind of, I, I don't it's know it's like you can't keep it down I, exactly I, I don't understand why people are it's not really sounds anything like what's going on out there it's the, it's, it's the it's the timeless nature of it isn't it and because you've been running a label like for a long time I guess and what's it like right well I, I know all of what it's like running a label I've been doing it myself for donkey's years but I wonder what you're it's a lot of hard work um, but we have the tools now with the internet where we can distribute our own music um, and we can get the money there's nobody intervening in between telling you what your music is worth and what the market value is for your music there's that no lot it's not there anymore now I can um, ask people to pay what I feel is the true value the amount of effort and work and time that's gone into making something. Um, there's nobody else there dictating. So this is a big help for a lot of artists now. Yeah, that's it. I, I agree. Being able to just control what you do and like deal with it in the way that you want to deal with it. And the result of that is that, that now I, I have um, facilities to be able to issue a lot more records. I see people want vinyl uh, and that's what I'm going to concentrate on. That's it, because you definitely seem to be still committed to the world of vinyl, definitely. which is like shows no sign of going away. No, it's not going away. We've got big plans for a lot more to come, yeah. And how is it for someone like yourself who's had such a long career when you, we, you see, like, say, young people enjoying your music? You go to a festival and you get to sing and people enjoy it and or people contact you who are kind of, you know you know, young enough to be your kids or even younger, it's kind of, um, I, w I wonder what that's like. It's a beautiful thing, trust me. It's it's fantastic. Um, it's I, I find it very easy to connect to young people as well. Um, so I, 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 it's beautiful to see young people reacting to it. It makes me feel youthful still, you know. It makes me feel that what I'm doing is worthwhile. I think music's one of those things that can keep you young forever as yeah, well because you've still got so. that like yeah. playing <laughs> kind of thing. And um, what 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 kind of stuff are you, are you working on? Anything at the moment? I mean, what kind of stuff can can we be looking out for in the future? Um, yeah, I've been I've been at the moment I've been building some rhythm tracks um, 
And you're still building them yourself. You're yeah. like producing and building them yeah, yourself. Yeah, still, yeah. I find that's the only way. I've tried many times to sing over other people's rhythm and I just can't get any... The vibe just doesn't come there. It, it, it's probably the chords, something, or the, the tonation of the instruments. They're not using a real piano, maybe, or the drums don't sound... They sound like, you know, the modern kind of drum sound. Something about it doesn't have that inspiration for me to start getting the lyrics, you know. How do you get your inspiration well, to Well, I don't know where it comes from. I, I don't. It just comes from somewhere. Certain things will influence me, and then, then a song will come together. But I have to be thinking about things. Maybe I watch something on the TV and I want to comment on it. Or I want to make a song about uh, a situation that's going on in the world today. You know, it's it's hard to pinpoint where these things come from. The thing is, we're still living in a world where so many things are completely wrong and kind of getting worse. I don't want to be negative, but it's like, you know, there's some crazy stuff going on. So I think if you are like a lyricist and a, and a writer, there's like, you know... There's a lot of stuff to write about. There's a hell of a lot of stuff to write about. Yes, yes. The work is still ongoing. There's a lot of work to be done. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. I love that statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me on to sort of, you know, as I sort of tie up the interview at the end, is, is like I ask everyone this same question, which is the... Uh, the Book of Dub question, and I've got this big book. It's getting bigger all the time. Got some great, great names in it, and I'm going to write Martin Campbell. And what what would you want written next to your name? Something to be associated with? Uh, a controversial roots lyricist who produces his own music. Nice. I think that sums up what you do from what I see, pretty much. Great. Thanks for joining me and Martin for this 28th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to visit the website lifeindub.com if you want to listen back to any previous episodes or if you want to pick up any of the Gold Disc Scoops reissue series. As ever, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell people about it and share it around. It all helps to get these special stories out to more and more people. If you want to get in touch, just email me, vibronics at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.